Hey there, Zach here. It is currently 12.18, less than six hours before this episode is supposed to launch, and I just now realized that I maybe sort of kind of edited the wrong one. Yeah, this is what happens when you record a bunch of episodes ahead of time during a pandemic when time has lost all meaning. So, we are just going to pretend like our interstellar episode got stuck on Miller's planet a few extra minutes, and so we'll be two weeks late, because, you know, relativity and whatnot. Meanwhile, this episode is all about Star Wars The Last Jedi, and is honestly a lot more lighthearted and fun anyway. So, without further ado, cue that lovely Sega Genesis music, and may the Force be with you. What I also like about the film, Ian, is that like scene at the end where they, they lose the Jedi text, right? They they get burned. And to me, if there's a moment where I, I set aside my skepticism about like relating this to religion, I kind of look at that moment and go like, there's something really powerful about that idea of taking on a tradition that's meaningful to you in such a way that you can let the text go, that it doesn't have to be there to guide things in this sort of like strict fashion. You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... My name is Adam Pryor. I teach at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. I am pretty sure, after how my classes have gone recently, that my lightsaber would definitely be red. <laughs> and I think the first thing, just right now, the first thing that I would do with it is use it to take down some trees behind my house that otherwise <laughs> I'm going to need to get a chainsaw for. But I think a lightsaber would be a lot more fun. And potentially cause fires. <laughs> That that ruined my my vision there. Actually, <laughs> I'm a little nervous about it now. Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University. My lightsaber would be a beautiful rainbow saber with sparkles, and I would <laughs> practice the 32 sword form of Tai Chi because I've been meaning to buy a practice sword because you need a sword to practice that form. I'm Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and I just want Darth Maul's lightsaber. Red, double-sided lightsaber. And the very first thing I would do is hold it out horizontally and have <laughs> and then just start spinning it. And I probably hurt someone or myself. My name is Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte. And if I had a real lightsaber, at least right now, the color would be green. And it would be a double-bladed one like in my video game I just bought. I think the very first thing I would do is I would take that thing out and just start swinging it everywhere I walked. <laughs> just, just everywhere. <laughs> like, that's all I would do. I would just walk up and down the streets with it, especially during this pandemic, and just start swinging it all over the place. It would be so much fun. And then we would go visit Ian in prison. <laughs> and sneak him a thermal detonator so he could escape. That's right. No, I would use the force to get out, right? So, yeah. But. <laughs> My roommate in college used to do that with a kendo sword. That was his form of exercise. So he'd walk, walk around the neighborhood with one of those bamboo kendo swords and uh, just swing it around. Did, did anyone ever say anything to him about it? Or... Ah, like law Not enforcement individuals? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Zach goes to visit him yeah. actually in prison. 
I mean, he's about as harmless as they come. So, I, yeah. Hey, at least I'm not trying to start fires with mine like Adam. I just wanted to take down some trees. <laughs> I didn't think about the fire. That was, that was all I wanted. So very I do practical. think actually the, the fire piece might actually help burn out the stump afterwards. So I'm, I'm actually doubling down maybe on that. This is a good idea. Also, yeah. I, what, what is Tai Chi pose 37? What? You, what? Kendra said <laughs> something about Tai Chi sword form 37. Uh, the 32 sword, 32 form. sword form. It's one of the sets of forms that you learn in Tai Chi. And is it 32 so most moves? of what you see in Tai Chi is like, this, yeah, 32 moves. Ooh. But it's like a separate set of forms where you're holding the sword because you're not always holding any weapons whenever you're doing the other forms. Yeah. Like if you see people doing Tai Chi in the park sometimes, yeah. they're usually not holding swords. But it would be really it's a different set of forms. if they were holding swords. Absolutely. If you want to get people cool. into it. It is pretty cool. I actually prefer using a spear or a staff, but the sword is cool too. <laughs> a spear might get you in more trouble. <laughs> Just around a lightsaber around the neighborhood. <laughs> You're are you doing Tai Chi with a spear like in your apartment during the pandemic? I don't um I am practicing Tai Chi, but not with a spear. <sighs> Oh, do you ever when you're I wish that I had a spear. Do you ever when you're walking in the apartment though, like pick up a stick or you know, a broom or something like that with a handle and start doing that kind of yes. stuff with it? Yes. Can, and it doesn't work very well. Can you have Chad record <laughs> that and send it to us? I I just need to see this. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um Maybe I'll wait till I get my practice sword if you could because it looks way cooler than with my lopsided broom. Yeah, and then if you could make the or baseball bat. Yeah, there you go. If you can make lightsaber sounds when you're doing it too, that would really make me happy. <laughs> so yeah, why are we talking about lightsabers? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> See, Rachel's not here to get me back on topic. Um. So okay, so today uh, we're gonna focus on uh, the Star Wars saga. Not all nine of them in the Skywalker saga, but uh, talk about some of them. And I decided, I thought, to be honest, that, you know, as I said in a communication with you guys the other day, that the one I thought would be interesting to start with is The Last Jedi, which I love that I got pushed back from Kendra. And I, I promise I would not take that away from you. That I wanted to talk about, uh, especially the spirituality theme throughout that particular film. And I think, you know, we could spend a long time talking about the theme of religion and spirituality throughout the entire series. But I, I always felt that the theme was different in that film than in others, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That there is a distinction. No. There. <laughs> well, because to <laughs> me, so when you see, so first of all, with that movie, The Last Jedi, Sorry if I give away any spoilers, but you know there was a lot of conflict over that film or disagreement. Some some people loved it, some people hated it, and then of course with some of the the decisions that were made when it came to displays of of the Force, people got really angry with the director, saying hmm. that he introduced new Force powers that had never been introduced before. How dare you? But so there was a lot of anger. And I remember soon after it came out, he actually put a video up on uh, Twitter showing him going to his bookshelf and pulling out a particular text. I can't remember the name of it, but I'll look it up. 
and we'll have it in the show notes, but the text was almost like a manual for the Jedi. And there's also a manual for the Sith that had been written years before. Um, and within that manual, there's actually description of the Jedi powers of the force powers that he uses in the film as a way to show people that no, 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 I did not just make this up. I mean, it's fiction. So everything's made up, but correct. (laughs) But there were some hardcore people that were really upset by what he did. So can you be more specific about what you're talking okay, about so the, of like the displays of the force. So the biggest thing was at the end that it was the astral projection mm-hmm. of Luke, right? People got very bothered that he showed something that had never been shown before from the, from the Jedi or from anyone who, you know, a, a force user had done in any of the films where he was able to project himself on another planet and never being there, which I thought was done brilliantly, especially since, we had not seen it before in the films. And so you were kind of with like, the red sand. Be... Yeah, exactly. I mean, when oh, you, when so you go cool. back and look at it, you actually see that he did an outstanding job with that because everything moving on that sand left the red streaks, except for Luke. Like he was mm-hmm. the only thing that, that did not leave any red streaks. Right. Well, I also thought, while well, I did not like the way the character of Luke Skywalker was treated because he was like my you know, childhood hero. Hmm. Let's face it. He's still my hero. And I'm 42 and I still love Luke Skywalker, but, um, I felt like his initially the first time I saw it, I felt like the power of Luke Skywalker was diminished, but it wasn't. But then when I saw it again and really started thinking more about it, it wasn't necessarily that his power was diminished. This is where the spirituality aspect comes in is that he cut himself off from it as was said in, in the film itself. Right? So it's almost like he became an atheist. If you think about it. He had a very strong spiritual connection. There are, just FYI, there is a Jedi religion in the world created after the films. There really is. And Jedi temples. So I may have looked into that at one point in my life, not as a way to join, but just really curious because there's a lot of, even too, when you step back and think about the films, there's a lot of connection between the way the force is portrayed in the Jedi and also samurai from older films. Mm -hmm. Well, and, the the Jedi religion that's out there, um, yeah. from my research, uh, and I could be wrong. Those who are are really into it don't believe that like it's not a religion based on the movies. It's a, a religion that believes that the Force inspired the movies as a way oh, of right. spreading uh, information uh, about it about itself of being known. Yeah, but that the movies are not canonical. In, in, the, in the way that, like, the Bible is. I did not realize that. Interesting. But so if we pick, there's lots of themes, of uh, there's a lot of religion in all of the films. But when we focus on The Last Jedi, for example, we've, we first see Luke, he has completely cut himself off from the Force. Like, he went to their first temple, the Jedi first temple, right? And you would think, knowing that that's where he went and went in seclusion, that to me, it would have made sense that he went there to learn and grow potentially. Cause we don't know what happens to him, right? We just know he ends up there. And then you learn that he's, he doesn't want to train Ray. He pushes back on it. He pushes back on the Jedi council and the way the Jedi were and completely disavows it. 
And then she realizes he's no longer connected to it. You see the turmoil that he's experiencing as he's cut himself off from the force and everything he has known and loved for a long period of time because he felt that it was too dangerous and he wanted it to die with him. Right. And then I'm getting smirks from Kendra. Uh, <laughs> what are you laughing at? <laughs> no, just finish. Okay. Point. So you then, <laughs> I'm just, you thinking. then get to the point where you start to see a different, you know, and this is again, explored between the character of Ray and Kylo Ren, that the connection between those two, that there is some sort of connection between them, that the, using the force that these two have a very strong bond that you've not seen before in the films to the point where they're able to easily see each other and interact like they're in the same room. And then, you know, there's the part uh, with like the last time that they do when Luke comes running in and sees, sees him and tells her to stop. And Kendra's just laughing. And it's really hard for me to talk about this. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I'm not trying to distract you. I just have, my own issues to work through. Just keep talking, please. I feel but like we have start... to work through some of those issues. <laughs> I will. I will work through some okay. of those issues with you, but I just need you okay. to finish. So then you see like, um, you know, one of the connections between them that she ends up being like having water on her or vice versa. So that shows it's more than just this potential mind connection of, of being able to communicate, but actually interact with each other which is explored much further in the last skywalker right no rise, rise of skywalker the last which i still film. haven't seen um, so that's explored a yeah. lot further in that film and then finally you see when it comes back down to luke after she leaves luke because she's angry with him that he won't do anything that he after being confronted by major spoiler master yoda which when I saw Master Yoda in that film, Anne was sitting next to me, and I almost started crying. I grabbed her hand and squeezed very hard. I was super excited. I um, love that you use the honorific title for Yoda, by the way. Well, it is. It's Master Yoda. It really shows how much you care. Well, because he then turns around and says to him, when he first realizes he's there, he's like, Master Yoda. He doesn't say Yoda. You know? And this is, you got you to gotta keep it real, okay? And then uh, Yoda shows his power, and then finally... <laughs> All you guys are starting to laugh at me. It's funny. And then finally you see when Luke is able to, again, project himself to another planet across the galaxy, uh, delay the attack so that the others can get free. And then uses, he uses all of his, as we here refer to, especially in um, uh, the last film, film number nine, that he talks about or that he uses all of his life force and gives himself fully to the force, which I admit the first time I saw the film and Luke Skywalker faded away, I may have shed a couple tears because that was really hard for me, <laughs> but that was very sad. Right. But he fully embraced that spirituality and gave himself to the force. To me, that's why I, I found that film fascinating when you look at it from a spiritual aspect of things and that the distinction between that and this whole conversation throughout the other films about, you know, to be a force user, you had to be a Jedi or Sith, but well, you know, that kind of stuff that it was almost like a special thing. Hmm. Um, whereas this was, it was something a little bit different. And then that's really touched on at the very end of the film of the last Jedi. When you see the kid get the broom hmm. with the force and with the idea that, you know, we don't know. Is there any connection between that kid and the Skywalker family or any other lineage? 
Okay, go Kendra. I just don't know. (laughs) I just need to give the full disclosure to everyone that I am a Star Wars fan, but I really don't love this movie. Why is that? But I feel like I shouldn't really talk about a lot of the things that I didn't like because it's not really relevant to religion or science. It's mostly about character development. Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of that stuff in there that sucked. Yeah, and a lot of that has to do with like changing directors and whatnot, but it just really, really ruins it for me. But yeah, I I guess the one one thing that I will say just about the like comparison, I guess if we're using this as a metaphor or like some kind of analogy for spirituality, I feel a little uncomfortable describing or like making a connection between like uh, losing power and like being troubled with atheism just as like a comparison if we're trying to like take this outside the film i mean i like i get what right. you're saying ian about luke's journey in particular but yeah and i i also just like visually in the film or not uh visually oh yeah maybe visually <laughs> no okay sorry i'm lost uh but i also liked the way that luke astral projected <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. And I also, uh, I felt uncomfortable the way that he dies the first time that I saw it. But then after, like, I just didn't like that choice for Luke Skywalker to be like, like, he doesn't see anybody. He's just on that island alone. But I think after giving it more thought, I I can see how that is like a meaningful way for him to go. But yeah, I guess I'm not really like saying anything about the spiritual nature of Jediism. Is that what they call it? Jediism? Yes. Uh, I think so. Okay. Because I don't really know anything about that. But and I think I would just say about the comparison between like uh, being a, a religious adherent versus atheism, I would feel uncomfortable making distinctions between like having meaning or like being really connected and spiritual and full of life versus on the atheist side, like not having any of those things. And I think too, when I use the, and I I appreciate you saying that when I use the term atheist, that was just for a lack of a better way of explaining it. You know, I guess you could say that if you want to stick with the terminology from the film that he was, you could say no longer a force user. Whereas prior to that, the last time we really see Luke at the end of uh, return of the Jedi, I mean, he's pretty damn powerful. He's done a lot of really cool stuff. Well, and this is what I love about his character arc. Like I watched the movie and I I was just blown away by by the the risk that they took with that because mm-hmm. when he when you meet him, he's this everyman hero, you know, who's this plucky young kid who's gonna save the world and well the universe, the galaxy, whatever. And he overcomes adversity and he faces his father and he grows in power. And at the end, he's he's now the master and he's going to uh, he's he's the last remaining true practicing Jedi. And he's going to you think anyway, at the end of the return of the Jedi, going to reinstate the Jedi order and we're going to overcome the Empire and everything is going to be happy fairy tale ending. And when we meet up with him later, we find that he's really bad at it. Mm-hmm. He didn't get any real training in this. Like he got, he got a, 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 
a nice montage with Yoda and then got to kill his dad. And now he's expected to carry on the tradition of this ancient practice, spiritual practice, and he's not able to because he doesn't have the grounding. And it's also kind of exposing some of the just inherent downsides of of the way that the the Jedi have operated, where just in the name, the Force user mm-hmm. is somebody who is using the Force. The Force is always talked about in the original movies as something that you use for practical purposes. It's something that helps you to, you know, pull fruit over to you to impress a girl that you like or to sense where lasers are coming. And it's it's always about this personal selfish uh, usage. And I, I think the development that we get in, in that movie, especially when they're burning down all of the ancient holy texts and whatnot, is that the force is bigger than your Jedi order. It's bigger than the, the little parlor tricks that you can do with it. It's bigger than... Uh, than your rules and your regulations it is in all and through all and it's going to outlive the jedi and maybe it should and this is probably my protestantism is showing a little bit right now (laughs) but i was I, i really liked that uh that surprising arc and i think i would add because i think this is why i brought up my original point is that all of those things that Zach is describing for people who are Jedi, like that is an atheistic spirituality, I think. Can you elaborate on that? Like the earlier to set on two sides, uh, like being a Jedi versus like falling away from the force, becoming an atheist. I think that's just like that dichotomy doesn't really make sense in this situation because I think that being a Jedi is like a form of spirituality that doesn't believe in a theistic God because theism is like, if you are a theist, then you have some sort of anthropomorphic or in other words, like a human image of a God, like a God that is relatable and person-like. And there are a lot of atheistic versions of like religion and spirituality and like buddhism is usually the first example people throw out as an atheist religion even though there are like theistic forms of buddhism but yeah i just thought it was really interesting for you to say that because i guess like this is why it is because i i see uh jediism if we're gonna like talk about that as a religious tradition or like a form of spirituality i see it as really atheistic yeah well and couldn't you argue which is maybe like a, a side point, I guess. But it just, I thought that was interesting. And couldn't you argue, and this, this may show my ignorance. I feel like a lot of things right now may show my ignorance. But especially when it comes to like Buddhism and the practices and like the, the belief that all things are connected, that there's a similarity between Buddhism and the notion of the force. Am I, am I right on that or am I picking the wrong religious practice? I mean, yeah, you you could say that. I think you could say that about like a lot of other traditions too. Okay. Um, but yeah. See, like what what's tricky a little for me about like Star Wars and religion in general is that like the force is such a sort of amorphic concept that you can apply it to whichever religious tradition you would like, right? So 
I have this notion of the force and it looks a lot like the Tao and a, a flowing of Wu Wei, right? Like, or I, I have this notion of the force, but it looks a lot like the way St. Francis of Assisi composes uh, odes to compassion. So like, if you look at like the Jediism, like the temple of the Jedi order, like their creed is an adoption of the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Right. So like, there's this idea that I'm like, on, on the one hand, like it is very interesting to me. Right. But there's something about this idea of the force and how we talk about star Wars in relationship to religion. That's, that's a little troubling to me and that it, it's such an ambiguous concept. It, it seems to sort of like pull towards this, like all religions are the same. They all have some notion that looks like this. And the force is just a better description because it can talk to all of these different religious traditions. And, I'm just suspicious of that inherently. It's why my lightsaber is red. (laughs) Doesn't that have to do with the type of crystal that you use? Yeah. Maybe, but it's probably because I'm suspicious. Fiber crystal. (laughs) I only can find certain types of crystals because I'm suspicious. Um, No, uh, Mm. because I feel like there's been like a cottage, a cottage industry of like, texts and books and things that have been published like religion through star wars or the gospel through star wars like Mm -hmm. which i i understand and there's part of me that i'm like okay i get it i know that this is for a very specific genre and audience and that kind of thing but on the other hand i'm like it it does bother me a little just because i'm like you know it's a it's a wonderful piece of fiction that can be meaningful to people i don't know if i want to call that religious in the same way that i talk about religions so we talk about, you know, I mentioned that we could bring, be bring up other films. That's one of the things amongst many things that bothered me about episode one, Phantom Menace, was when Qui-Gon Jinn is talking to Anakin's mother and asks who his father was. And her response was, is there was no father. Mm. I can't, you know, I can't explain it. I just, I carried him. I had him. And you're kind of like, I mean, really? Like, it's a there little was, heavy there handed. Was a, yeah, there was a lot of things I did not like about that film. That was that was one of them that really bothered me when I first saw that. And I still, when I think about it, I'm like, I mean, come on. Yeah, that's so silly. So as silly as the midi-chlorians. Yes, the midi-chlorians are the ones that impregnated her. But it was just kind of yeah. like, uh, I mean, I just felt like he was trying so hard to get more people in by doing that bit right there. To show that, oh, look, he's just like Jesus. Almost. Oh, I didn't even remember that. Immaculate conception with Anakin's mother. Shmi. <laughs> that yeah, movie is best forgotten. But I mean, I, I, I think to me, that's like a good example of this, like where you, it, if part of what, like you're, if part of what's interesting about discussing Star Wars and religion is this idea that because it's a, a sort of common text that folks from different traditions can come around and discuss and then go back to their own religious tradition and see some aspect of it in a different way. I, I'm kind of okay with that. Yeah. Right? It's the like next step that it seems to take where it's like, we're going to pick up this religious trope and bastardize it and then put it out there for a sort of general consumption. Which I think is like sort of the reaction you're having to this idea of talking about Anakin in terms of parthenogenesis and immaculate conception. There's, there's a lot of history there from a very particular religious tradition that takes that very seriously. My thought is that like, if you had this conversation with 
with serious religious practitioners from lots of different religions, you would probably find those, oh, well, they stepped on my tradition when they did this moment. Oh, absolutely. Like across the board. And that's mm-hmm. where I, I start to sort of go like, where is this like a helpful conversation and where does it become problematic? But this again, my problem with the kind of like old country yeah. buffet spirituality of 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 our modern times as much of like a hey kids get off my lawn sentence that is where you just want to take the sound bites and like the little nuggets of wisdom from every little tradition that sounds good to you in that moment and piecemeal them together into a religion that makes you feel happy when you're just licking the icing off of a bunch of cupcakes and you're not actually getting into how they got to those places and in the end it it just ends up being empty and just unfulfilling and you end up almost killing your nephew in in his sleep because you're not a very good jedi master and that creates your you know the new sith and i mean that's a very specific example but yeah i would also say that as someone who does like to lick the icing off of cupcakes literally and (laughs) metaphorically very tasty I I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's completely unfulfilling or superficial. <laughs> Although I agree that it can be. <laughs> I don't think that it has to be that way. I think too when you look at and this comes from an article from the Atlantic <laughs> written soon after uh the last Jedi came out, which I'll I'll share with you for our um show notes, but in it the author is arguing that you know, and this was written back in 2017 that Last Jedi is more on spiritual than religious line, um, and how it definitely, as we've said earlier, it goes against a lot of what we know about the Force and how the theme seems to move away from this organized faith and fully embracing more spirituality and mysticism, um, which I just thought was was very interesting. This seems to be that. Prior to this, that particular film, The Last Jedi, that it seems to be that, you know, you had to have a particular faith or ritual or some sort of ancient wisdom, as that's the words that this author is using, to be a practitioner. Um, but that now he's kind of, Luke is telling Ray, you got to do this yourself. Like, you got to find this within yourself, which I thought was very interesting. And so instead of, uh, here's the way to do it, this is what you need to do to become a Jedi, it's more of a, no, 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 the journey's different. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Which is something that really resonates with me as a person who's had a lot of uh, negative interactions with some people of it, you know, individuals who are more supporters of like Ken Ham, who sometimes will present Christianity as that this is the way it is type mentality of Christianity. Whereas, you know, I advocate that it's not, there's not one way to be a Christian. There's not one way to be a person of a particular faith. And I liked that about the film. And I think that's one of the reasons why at least that theme throughout the film really connected to me. Yeah, I think that what you're saying is in part the reason that I responded to Zach the way that I did just now when he was talking about those cupcakes 
is because I think that for people who uh, do grow up and feel uh, restricted by their religious tradition in whatever way, and again, this is like obviously just indicating that I am a millennial Protestant, <laughs> so I can own that. But I think there is something really liberating in realizing that you don't have to just find meaning in the tools that you were given as a child and that you grow up and you make friends across uh, traditions, lines. And like last week, I uh, attended a virtual Seder with a group of friends that I'm invited to each year. And that's not something that I would ever do by myself, like as someone who like grew up Christian. But now, uh, whenever I do participate in uh, a Seder with my Jewish friends, that is like a really meaningful thing that I do that like most people I know in like older generations in my family uh, would not find that appropriate. But I think there's a way that you could look at what I'm doing in that sense as like picking different things to put together into um, a way of being that is like spiritual for myself. But I think it's really uh, relationally connected and it's about like having access to traditions that we would not have had, you know, like a 200 years ago, but now we have friends that like live all over the globe and you just, like there, there's um, there's greater accessibility to those things, and so, but I think that that's different than maybe what you're talking mm -hmm. about, Zach, which is this way of looking at anything that's not your own as this exotic, hidden wisdom that we want to like own and tame, and that it's, you know, like I don't know, somehow the, the exoticized nature of it is maybe like the problematic mm -hmm. piece of it, but I don't think that that's really the way that I see people experiencing uh, multiple traditions, even though that is a risk of it. So I have a as like seeing I have a yeah. question that's been on my mind a lot. Most of our religious traditions are old, <laughs> just to put it lightly. And most of them grew up mostly in isolation. Uh, and a lot of the big changes, to those religious traditions happened when there were cross-cultural mixes. You know, like Judaism changes a lot during the exile and uh, Christianity changes a lot during the, the Roman diaspora. And we, we tend to adapt other, other beliefs when we encounter them. But for the most part, these religious traditions are based on previous religious traditions from that religious tradition. So Christian authors building off of other Christian authors, building off of other Christian authors, using the same set agreed upon texts for the most part, with a couple of variations here and there. But there, there's it's a, bro it's a broad river of tradition that's going fairly straight and building off of each other. But in, in the digital age, we're having that cross-pollination just like crazy and traditions that are would otherwise not really cross-pollinate are now all over the place and like you say we have these 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 relationships that can be cross-cultural and cross borders and across the world and it is the 
it seems to be now the trend in in especially younger generations, you know, myself included, to uh, to see something in another religious tradition and get that bit of holy envy, and then want to, or if not, actually incorporate some of that into our own uh, faith. And then what what happens with that when we have built up our religious traditions slowly over time in somewhat moderate isolation with a little bit of cross-cultural pollination, but now we're just poof, all together without that as much. What What comes next? How do you build off of something when we're combining all of them together? Are you asking that as like an institutional question? Like how do you as a pastor or like how do pastors a hundred years from now address? No, I'm I'm not even concerned about how to intentionally address this. What happens? What is what is next? What what how does religious religion advance now with all of these influences coming together in a somewhat unprecedented way? I think same as it always has. I think there's a rhythm, uh, just like the rhythm of charisma, I guess, where Ooh. there's something new that destabilizes institutions and there's like a reordering of what it means to be right about this doctrine or this ritual. And then people get into a rhythm and they feel good about the new order. And so people do that for several years until somebody's sick of what they've been doing for the last you know, 50 years or so. And then there's like a new charismatic leader or new idea that shakes it all up again. And it's just this cyclical pattern of like destabilizing reintegration of, you know, what's new. And a lot of what's new isn't really that new. Um, And then you have like a period of stability and then you start all over. But like in in Christian tradition, because that's, where I'm situated, you know, you you have like the Reformation, in in which everything gets shaken up, but it gets shaken up because of new interpretations of the Bible, not because Martin Luther and Zwingli and all them brought in the Tao Te Ching and said like, here's some really great interpretations based on a different text, and so everyone, it was a, a Reformation from within, and. You know, even the charismatic movements of the the early 20th century, that all comes from within the Christian historical tradition and biblical tradition. But now we're we're more free to mix things that feel right and that aren't necessarily grounded in a history of tradition or of a reinterpretation of a generally agreed upon religious text. And I don't really know how to do that. And this is this is I should show some of my uh, my bias. I one time brought in um, a copy of the Bhagavad Gita to a Bible study in my Baptist church when I was coming home from college and was all idealistic and excited about some of the new ways of thinking about Christ and was nearly kicked out of my church for it. And so I I have not really figured out how that looks like in uh, in in the future. Yeah, I guess. I would think that it would continue in like two separate trajectories, I guess. Like there will always be people who want the pure uh, or what they consider to be the pure version of one religious tradition that is uninfluenced by 
outside sources, however true or false that may be. And then there will always be people who are more open to a mix and match approach. And I don't think that, I don't think there is one way forward, Mm. I guess, for religion in the future. And I think you could tie what you just said back to The Last Jedi. Do it. Of showing how, I think that's one of the things I do like the most about that film is that the way Luke approaches training Ray is not does not really align with what had been done with training Jedi prior to that. You know, it was not like it, it was done differently is that and talk as I said earlier about this idea that, you know, it's kind of pushing against this. The, here's the way to do it. This is how you become a Jedi. And he's pushing against that. I think a lot of that's from you know his failures that we learn about throughout that film when he tried setting up the Jedi Temple and the Jedi Academy or setting up a Jedi Academy. But I, I think there's really a lot of um, it's nicely done how they really push against this notion that here's the way to be a Jedi. So and I think you could even argue that the character of Luke Skywalker, if you really look at his entire arc, that even his training pushed against the way to be a Jedi. Oh, yeah. Because if you remember in Empire Strikes Back, you know, he's already been trained by um, Obi-Wan earlier and New Hope and those types of, you know, New Hope and talked and helped throughout Empire Strikes Back. But when he finally meets Yoda, sorry, Master Yoda, you know, he he believes that Master Yoda is going to be like this powerful warrior or this great warrior. And then when he realizes this the little green guy, he's shocked by it. And then Yoda at first says, you know, he's too old to be trained. You know, he's he's not we're not going to do this. And then you learn in the prequel series that when they are trying to train Jedi, um, it's from when they're children. And there's even pushback at first when Qui-Gon Jinn brings Anakin before the Jedi Council. One of the reasons why is that they talked about you know, his connection to his family and to his mother and how what this could lead to and, and his age. I mean, so there's a lot of pushback. So there was this one. Here's the way we have to do it. And then when you look at especially Luke Skywalker throughout the whole film series, he's kind of goes against all of that. The questions that I think like that Zach and, and Kendra are asking about what I would call multiple religious belonging are, I think, really important, really, really important today in particular for all the reasons that are that are being named. Um, but but part of what I'm thinking of, Zach, when you're framing this issue is a, a text by um by Dwayne Bidwell called When One Religion Isn't Enough. And one of the challenges that I think he identifies really early on in that text is this idea that we tend to want to talk about religion in very American Protestant ways as propositional sets of beliefs. And when you do that, talking about overlapping or change or multiple religious belonging gets really difficult because there's there's there are other elements to what religious belonging and religious participation means that aren't well encapsulated by that very protestant impulse american protestant impulse to put religion into sets of propositional beliefs and what i also like about the film ian is that like scene at the end right where they they like lose the texts they lose the jedi text right they they get burned they're no longer there right 
And to me, it's it's actually one of the like, if there's a moment where I, I set aside my skepticism about like relating this to religion, I kind of look at that moment and go like, there's something really powerful about that idea of taking on a tradition that's meaningful to you in such a way that you can let the text go, mm-hmm. right? It's That it doesn't have to be there to guide things in this sort of like strict fashion, like Kendra was describing, that, that you'll always have adherents that are looking for that. But that there's another way to do this that's that that's a deepening in terms of how you take it into yourself. Right. When I frame multiple religious belonging that way, that there are things from another tradition that I just haven't been able to find in my own, but they drive me back to my tradition so that I look for things that maybe I didn't know was there. That to me is the sort of like most powerful way in which this works. And it it avoids for me, at least for me, that's not the sort of simple syncretism of licking the icing off the cupcakes um, that I want to avoid. Um, and I I don't think that's easy. And I don't think there's like a quick and quick and dirty way to say like, well, when you do it this way, it works, and when you do it this way, it doesn't. Like, I know like my colleagues here at Bethany, we have an interface studies minor, and we talk about this all of the time. Like we're constantly worried that because we don't have a tremendous amount of religious diversity where we are, that when we teach this, we're just teaching syncretism. Hmm. Like that keeps us up at night. But on the other hand, there's a part of us that sort of, I think, pretty pretty readily says like, it's better to take that risk than to not introduce students to sort of this diversity of traditions and open that up. So I think those are some of the things that that to me are really, really interesting about how this conversation gets shaped around how you belong to more than one tradition. Um, Sorry, that was more than I intended to say. That's okay. That's a good point, though. All right. So now I have a multiple religious belonging question for Star Wars, though. Ha! Could one be both Jedi and Sith? That's a good question. Uh, not doctrinally. So, yeah. <laughs> but perhaps... Do away with your propositional beliefs, Zach. Exactly. Someone <laughs> could utilize what what could be referred to as the light and dark side of the Force simultaneously in embracing a holistic human experience of the world and the universe so and there actually is a character that does that in the prequels at least in the book version of episode three oh revenge of the sith and it's uh mace windu hmm. so in that particular yeah. film like you see you know it, it's in it really comes out in the scene at least in the book version of it but the movie scene where it would come out if they if they incorporated it better was the fight between him and the emperor and how you know he had defeated the emperor who's this all powerful being you know and pretty much cannot be beaten type mentality around the emperor because he hid himself for so long so I mean, he's clearly very powerful um in the book description of that scene it talks about how Mace Windu has learned how to tap into some of the powers more associated with the dark side and with the Sith as a way to make himself an even more powerful Jedi. 
mm-hmm. which I thought, and I'm not doing it justice. I need to find the part in the book, which, but I thought when I read that in the book, that was fascinating. Cause I was, if you're going to have okay, a dark side Jedi, yeah. it would be Sam Jackson. Absolutely. So, um, I just thought, I thought that was really cool. Like how they really kind of at least address that in the book without. Well, I think Anakin could have been that if the Jedi wasn't so dogmatic and restrictive if they had seen in him great power and in and also great confusion and frustration and he didn't know how to handle his emotions and they tried to tell him you know conceal don't feel don't let them show but now they know Um, frozen Frozen. (laughs) and that doesn't work and anyone who grew up on mr rogers (laughs) knows that that does not work that you have to find healthy ways to express your doubt and your anger and your fears and your frustrations or else you're just going to end up murdering a bunch of younglings. Um, Again, very specific. Most people don't murder tiny Jedi, just Anakin. But I think that with a more holistic (laughs) approach to life and to the force, Anakin could have been the complete Jedi, right? And that's that's the the prophecy was that he'd bring balance to the force. Mm -hmm. And he was someone who expressed both sides of the force it's just that the jedi were so dogmatic and restrictive that they suppressed the other side and then you know he ended up being who he was and i think you could too and i won't get too much into it since you've not seen episode nine the rise of skywalker i know that's that's one of my deep shames and i'm so sorry that you all have to know this about me i don't get to see movies now that i have kids and I was waiting for it to come out online and I was going to watch it last night before this so you wouldn't ruin anything and it just didn't happen. Well, they. So, what but, I like though is is that you do see the character Ray figuring out how to balance the pull of the light and the pull of the dark and mixing those two powers, which was very interesting. You know, there were some issues with that film as well uh, and I just don't want to get much, too much into it because I don't want to hurt you. Zach, because <laughs> there, there are some really cool parts about that film. But I think what's interesting, again, is that that is a character that has to really deal with the notion of light and dark. Um, mm. And it seems like when you look back to The Last Jedi, that it's almost like Luke prepares her to to embrace those emotions instead of trying to push them down like they did with Anakin. Well, here's a question, and this is kind of near the end, so sorry if I'm cutting anyone off, but it seems to me that almost every hero and villain in modern fiction has to be both good and bad in a conflicted kind of a way, whereas in previous millennia, almost, most of our compelling characters were either good or bad, and they were almost aspirationally so, you know, like Superman for example, and Superman doesn't fly now. And so when they redid Superman, they had to make him kill a guy. And it was just like dark and brooding Superman doesn't work. We, we're, we're a Batman people now. We need to have a hero that has a dark side. And we need to have a villain. Some of us were always Batman and people. I, I wanna Some of us are just dark. 
can clarify your wording there. You said Superman doesn't fly now. You weren't meaning like literally because you know Superman still flies in the film. You're talking about how just the constant goodness is, does not work, right? No, it you... does not work as well as it okay, used to. But he still like, flies. Even, even when they brought back the Muppets, they had to have a conflicted Kermit the Frog. We could not have... <laughs> An all-good, altruistic Kermit the Frog. We had to have a dark side Kermit who had Just given say up that hope Superman on things. Flies. <laughs> Superman flies. Superman flies. Superman originally, right, didn't fly. Just could jump really far. Am I making that up? I don't in, know. I wasn't alive in the fifties. Oh well, in uh, Man of Steel, when he's learning to fly, he originally jumps very far. But can you think of a of a a, a character, <laughs> either a villain or a hero, that is? all good or all bad without conflict. Even Thanos makes some good points and Captain America fell apart. Like we, that's because that character is boring. I mean, nobody, nobody wants to see the all good guy or the all bad guy. We but they used to work. No, I don't think they really did. No, well, but you could, could you argue though, that in the original uh, three films for star Wars, that the first three that came out, that's that Luke was just good. Like you don't really see a bad side of Luke until, you hear about the backstory from Last Jedi, right? I I would agree with that. I'm gonna have to really pick my brain to see is there at least in the films now in the books they do some things differently, right? And Vader gets redeemed, but he's he's not the same kind of really complicated character that he is in the prequels. Right. So I guess like part of what I'm I, I guess yeah I mean I I think that seems fair it, it, to me. Part of the difference in that is like is just to sort of jump back to Star Wars, right? Like. Is is the idea that this is like an epic, like in a in a sort of like classical sense, or is it like sort of fulfilling the the function of like the the movie version of a modern novel, right? If it's the movie version of a modern novel, then your character needs some angst, and something needs to be wrong with them, and th there's got to be that tension, right? I and I think mostly what you're describing, Zach, like are like contemporary film works for like the mass public are largely driven by this sort of like very specific version of the great literary novel and the catharsis that's needed for a character. What's interesting is that like, I feel like Star Wars started out as like a classic epic. There's good, there's bad. This character fights their way through the fates as they try and negotiate that. And then somewhere along the line, Last Jedi, like the prequels, that shifts into this like more contemporary novel structure instead of a classic epic that i think is is like part of what's being described and i think the idea is that like the classic epic where one negotiates one ways one's way through fate like it it, it doesn't appeal in part i would argue because it feels so familiar like it it's it's too real, right? There are too many things that are so far out of our control that we just throw up our hands on a daily basis and we go, ah, I'm just going to try and get through the day. Mm -hmm. And so it loses that sort of like escapist quality of the tragic hero of a novel. So I'm not totally surprised to see that. I would be, I'm, I'm, I would be almost like more shocked if like you found something today that can really do the story of the great classic epics without having that feeling of inevitability like to me if you, this is not this is way way off topic right but if you wanted to like pick a film that i think gets as close to that as possible it's probably like oh brother where art thou 
Hmm. Right. Which is 100% (laughs) classical epic. Right. I mean, it's based like they're, they're using the odyssey. It has a Cyclops. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like I have not seen that movie in forever. And it's, it it is like a a fight. What? (laughs) I was not the, I was not the biggest (laughs) fan. Ah. Oh, it's okay. I love Based the soundtrack. Based on this two-minute discussion, I, I think, think I would, would like it. Yes, please go get the movie right now. I have to um, watch it again. Do that today. <laughs> but, but like, I, I mean, I, I look at that and go, okay, so that's about as close as you get as seeing, uh, like, a contemporary retelling of a, f- of a fight against fate that still works. Whereas I think, like, most science fiction now, and maybe, like, eventually when we do Star Trek, this is where we'll see some differences between Star Trek and star wars right like i think there's a certain element which star trek is still trying to do the classic until the the newer movies but was trying to do the sort of like classic epic like there's a certain fatalistic element to the vastness of exploration versus the sort of operatic style of star wars that are in a certain sense leading people towards two different sorts of stories two different ways of thinking through how one shapes a meaningful life that I think are really, really interesting. Well, we'll find out more next week when after <laughs> one's Passover is over and Rachel can lead us in her hopeful future of Star Trek. And I have no idea which movie she's picking, but it'll be optimistic, I'm sure. Absolutely. We're going to save the whales or something next week. Yes. Somehow she's going to make the Wrath of Khan positive. <laughs> <laughs> She's more of a. I don't know how she's going to do it, but I feel strongly she will. This has been episode 34 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. A big thank you to all our supporters on patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast and all you heroes out there sharing the podcast on your social media pages during these wacky do days. I would hug each and every one of you if I could, but we literally just did an episode on why that's a terrible idea. Episode 30, by the way. You can find that episode as well as show notes and links to further reading at our website at downthewormhole.com. Next week, Rachel guides us gently away from our dystopian sci-fi and into the wonderful world of Star Trek, specifically Star Trek Generations. So tune in next week to hear about how the Talmud says that heaven is maybe just one big orgy, and how even Captain Kirk would get bored with that afterlife. We'll ask how how our concept of time has colored our anticipation of the afterlife. How do such temporal neurochemical experiences such as joy and desire translate into transcendence? Can thinking about the nexus help us to deconstruct our own religious traditions and second guess all those pictures of harps and pitchforks and whatnot? Or maybe we could get more creative. Hey, Kendra, what do you think about devils stabbing people with pitchforks for all eternity? It is pretty cool. I actually prefer using a spear or a staff, but the sword is cool, too.